You're listening to the I-5 Corridor, hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider. Hey, and welcome back to the I-5 Corridor podcast. Now we have Shane Hoffman from, actually, kind of from the I-5 Corridor. You've, how many pieces have you done now, Shane? I think four or so. Hopefully we can fit a few more in before the year's over. Now, when you uh, when you finish up your college experience, I imagine this is, you know, you're, you're probably saying that the main reason that the University of Oregon was worth such such money is uh, this I-5 corridor, uh, just just well-produced podcast appearances is probably up there, I would imagine. No, you know, you're, you're joking, but I mean, being able to, to network with people like yourself and do work for your site is going to be a lot more valuable than some of these classes at the SOJC, I'll tell you that much. Okay, so so if, if people don't know, you, you've you contributed a, a fair amount of men's basketball coverage for us. Uh, you wrote a pretty awesome Brandon Dorless story earlier in the year. Um, we'll probably have some more of you going forward, especially as uh, we, we get closer to March Madness. Uh Tell people a little bit about yourself. How, how did you end up at Oregon? Why why sports journalism? Like, what did you not have any good influences in your life telling you to do something differently? Like, like how, how did you end up in this spot? Right, right, right. So I'm originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, my dad teaches at U of M, so I kind of wanted to get as far from U of M as I could and just go explore. I didn't think it was going to take me as far as Oregon. I applied to a, <laughs> a bunch of journalism schools, and it came down to, to here and uh, new house over at Syracuse, which is actually where my best friend ended up going. So I've been kind of able to live vicariously through him. But I just feel like Oregon was kind of a total package in a lot of ways. And it's been able to, you know, kind of check the boxes, both in terms of career, but also just being able to enjoy my college experience and explore a little bit and it's a place in the country I love and be able to get those West Coast ties a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been awesome so far. Uh, we don't I don't know where I'm going post grad. But no, you know, I, I ended up starting journalism kind of accidentally. Um, I think it was my sophomore year in high school. I, I didn't have any other English classes to take. So I actually hopped into class and I hated it at first. I didn't get the point of it. Yeah. it was, I was used to writing essays and whatnot and you know, kind of clicked eventually and I had a great uh, journalism teacher and she kind of just pushed me to do what I loved and explore a little bit and it brought me out here. You know, the the way we ended up getting in touch is I think you sent me a LinkedIn message, uh, which is interesting because at that point, I think I maybe checked my LinkedIn once every, like, yeah, I was comfortably employed at the time, Shane. I wasn't, I wasn't checking it that often, but uh, um, you, you had reached out and just said like, hey, like, I want to pick your brain on some things. And, and that's one thing that I've, uh, I, I think that you've done incredibly well is uh, just about everyone I know in the industry at some point you've hit up <laughs> to, to, to either like pick their brain or ask them about their experiences. In it. And I think that's such a valuable trait to have. Uh, but I didn't bring you on here for the biography. Like I brought you on here because you do good work and I haven't been paying as much attention to the men's basketball season as I probably should. Uh, and it looks like things are kind of coming into place like they always do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're talking about what I'm going to be doing for you guys in the future. There is a piece I'm working on, um, kind of an oral history of the Altman teams where I've been talking to a handful of former players and assistants and managers and, and whatnot. And so kind of trying to dive into what makes these Altman teams click late in the season. But this is definitely another example of that. Um, I'm sure, we'll get into kind of the upcoming schedule and whatnot. But look at like 10 and 2 in their last 12. And it doesn't even look like the team we saw in November, right? So that's a question I've been asking people is like, what does a practice in November versus practice in February look like? That was a, you know, one of your ideas is something to ask people. 
Um, and so it's been interesting to see them kind of gel. And there's, I think there's still a lot they can and, and need to figure out. Um, but when you look at what this team has been able to do since, you know, um, kind of Christmas break, it's, it's unrecognizable almost. Oh. I just don't understand how you have a team that can go down to Southern California and sweep two top, was it two top 10 or top five teams between USC and UCLA? At that um, point, it was top five, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and this was a team that back in November, and this the Ducks had high expectations, but they got beat by 30 by BYU. They got beat by 40. Um, shoot, who, who's the, who did they Houston, get beat by 40? Yeah, H- yeah, Houston put like a 40 spot on them. Like it... That each one of these Altman seasons where he's turned it around, like there's always been like some sort of like kind of dip or down point, but at no, at no point had they ever like been blown out by like 70 combined points in two games. Like what, what do you think was kind of the cause of that and, and to get to the point they're at now? It's funny. I was actually talking to someone about this yesterday. Um, Cause they're not really playing like any, differently offensively they're doing the same kind of stuff it's just kind of working better and I think they're you know better gelling as a team a lot of the quotes at the start of the year were kind of jarring from Altman and that's why I almost thought you know maybe this was the year they wouldn't turn around he just seemed super down on not only the performances but how the team was working together and it seemed like you know they've been so good because that's part of it right is bringing all these different kind of characters together these transfers these juco kids these five-star freshmen who want to come and start and get a lot of you know exposure because that's what the industry is like now. Um, but you're bringing all these guys together and you're asking them to kind of just be at peace with their roles. And that takes time. And that's something that people I've interviewed these last few weeks have been telling me. Like, that's a big part of that. Um, and so, you know, early in the season, you have these three guards kind of dominating the ball and going ISO a lot. And it didn't work. But then you look at those top five wins they beat UCLA and USC on the back of those three guards going heavy ISO ball and just hitting shots. And so, yeah, going forward, and I would love to talk about this in a second, just like they're going to have to find another option. It can't just be those three guards. But it's just funny to see now because they're doing essentially the same thing offensively, just with more success because the guys trust each other. Exactly. And, I mean, you, you can talk about guys accepting roles you you wrote a story for us two weeks ago about eric williams and how just basically this was a dude who like every place he's been he's been kind of like the chip on your shoulder i'm going to go out and score 30 points a game get people to notice me score 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 and now like he's like a career low in minutes almost like his, his production looks down but like essentially like organs efficiency um overall and, and like having him come off in that six-man role it, it, it seems like it's been huge for them yeah, and, and especially defensively, you know, some people I talked to, including um, assistant coach Mike Menenga, he was telling me, he was like straight up said that, you know, when he's locked in, he thinks he's the best defender in the Pac-12, but Menenga thinks that up Williams rather. Um, so I think honestly going forward, they're, it, and it's funny too, because, you know, last year they lose to USC because outside of like Frank Kepnong, they had no one who was even close to big enough to um, go up against the Mobley brothers. And so everyone this offseason is like, okay, well, they're going to have Dante back. It's going to be Kepnong. It's going to be Biddle and Johnson, four seven-footers. Like, this is going to be the biggest Altman team ever because usually he has one of those rim-running, shot-blocking seven-foot you know, centers. But again, it seems like their best lineup is probably going to be the three guards and Devion Harmon, Jacob Young, Will Richardson, and then Gary A kind of as a small ball five, and then Eric Williams because defensively they fly around. They get a lot more shooting in there because everyone 
quote unquote can shoot. Although that's another thing is they haven't been the same shooting team they were last year. So that's just been interesting to see for me. And you you, you mentioned it. I mean, you look at Eric Williams; his numbers are down, but um, I think he's he's you know he's finishing games a lot, and he he's hit some of the biggest shots of his career this year, without a doubt. How how would you kind of handicap the the Pac-12 race? Like like if you were to kind of start placing Pac-12 tournament bets right now, kind of power rankings? It's tough. I mean, Arizona is by far the kind of most consistent team, and if you watch them, it's not a surprise because they just have a ton of dudes. Um, I'm a big fan of especially Benedict Matherin. Um, The guard they have has been solid all year, and they have some other pieces that you could kind of see last year, but it kind of has come together this year, and they've surprised some people with how good they've been, certainly myself. Um, but then when you start scanning down, and this was something I, even I was caught off guard by, and I've been you know, covering the team, is like Oregon's tied for second in the Pac-12 now. If you look at Pac-12 wins and losses, they're 8-3, and three, and UCLA's 8-3. and three. USC's falling, and I think USC's probably not a, as good as some people thought they were when they had that really good non-conference record. They've dropped a few Pac-12 games. So if Oregon, and we'll get into the upcoming schedule, but if they can kind of you know keep racking these wins up, it's going to be Oregon – Arizona and UCLA, which is reminds me of what 2016 when they were all kind of tied at the top right. there, and when Lonzo was over there and whatnot. So that was that was that was such a fun era for that yeah. too. Like, like yeah. just it, or, or Oregon and Arizona were always just like two titans, like ba- you know bashing their heads up against each other, and then every few years, like UCLA would like pull out like a Lonzo type, and it, it just like that was like I think that Pac-12 tournament was the first one at the T-Mobile Center too, and it, it, it was it was just good. It was fun. I liked it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been more fun this year than last year just because even if it's the same quality of basketball, having those numbers in front of some teams makes games feel bigger. I mean, like, you know, when, when UCLA comes to Oregon, that's going to feel like a huge game because the number in front of UCLA, you know, they're going to be a top 15 team, right? Which is kind of crazy that they've fallen that far, right? Because they started, you know, top three. But yeah, I mean, it's got to be one of those three teams. You know, I think Arizona is the best team in the conference. But again, it's like, Who's going to be surprised if Baldwin wins? What it would be like three games in three days, and you know, it's 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 kind of ridiculous that they have those couple like throwaway Pac-12 games like in December. Like, yeah, it's yeah. Just, it just seems like like I I get why they do it, and like I I do think that there needs to be some sort of motive to make the first half of the season like watchable or, or like have some, some something on the line. Um, but it's obviously like two different seasons, and, and for this Oregon team, it, it, it's a very big or good example of like essentially two different teams. And, and I feel like if those two games that they that they played in December were on this half of the schedule, um, they'd probably be right right in line with uh, Arizona there. Yeah, excuse me. I'm curious uh, when you watch Oregon, even from a little bit of a distance, what do you? Because you covered some, you covered the Baylor game, and whatnot, and that was kind of the, the first glimpse that they were maybe rounding a corner, just keeping that one so close. What do you see as like still the missing piece? Like if you're watching this team, because their guards seem like they're good enough to upset someone in March Madness, they're just talented, right? But you know, what's what's maybe holding them back from being even better than that? Boy. It'd be really nice if they just had like a really athletic like six eight wing who could who could like pull up and score, you know. I mean, yeah, just like, what like, Gary like some, wants to be. Yeah, um, man, because like that was a th- like on on Altman's really good teams. Like he just had like 
so many like of those perimeter wing guys that he could go to, whether it was like Dwayne Benjamin or even like Elgin Cook, who maybe played a little bit more inside. I mean, Boucher and Bell weren't, but neither of them were kind of like true centers either. Like Boucher was out on along the perimeter. Um, what's what's Dante's ceiling now? Like you know, he he came in as like a lottery pick pick. Like I, I haven't followed him too closely, but he yeah. he kind of seems like that guy that everyone's still waiting on a, a little bit, even though he's been playing. Yeah, I mean, you see glimpses, you know, center in the NBA has changed a lot, but it almost seems like we're going back to the true center. It seemed like there was that that kind of departure from that to the small ball, and it seems like lately with some of these incredible centers in the NBA, we're getting back to the importance of center, and I don't think Dante's ever going to be like a starting center consistently at the NBA level. I think he'll make his way onto a roster just because he's an in-shape seven-footer. Um, you know, he's got decent post moves, but he's never developed anything outside of that, and he's inconsistent as a rim protector. Um, he's foul-prone, and, and kind of his motor is off and on. So I'm not sure. I was, I've was i been impressed with how well he's bounced back this year. I, I, you know, I wrote about it. I talked about it. I thought Kepnon was going to steal the job this year. Um, right. He's been a little slower to develop than some people thought, um, but Dante came back from that injury. And he had a tear, but now lately, again, it's been like you haven't been getting anything from the bigs, and that's why they've been going to the small ball lineup. Um, I wanted to go back because you were talking about the 6'8 wings, and like I mentioned, like Gary A is kind of the only guy on the roster that could be that guy. And, and I, I personally love Altman in media. Like, I think he's like talking with him, I think he gives some great sound bites. One thing he said this season that really jumped out at me is he was someone asked him about Gary A struggling early in the season, and he said, you know, Quincy came here. He saw what Eugene Amarui did last year, where Eugene comes in as a low post guy, kept that skill set, but started playing more and more on the perimeter as the year went on, and then he went on to the NBA. And I think Gary has tried to do that, and Altman said as much, and it hasn't always looked great. There's been flashes when they lost to Colorado at home. He had 20-something, but it's coming along slowly, so I wonder in the next 10-plus games if that's going to keep clicking, because if that does, then especially if he's playing in that small ball five, that's that's big. All right, I... First, I'm just going to ask you. We get, we got the Bay Area schools coming up. What's what's the key to kind of this stretch for the Ducks and, and what's coming up next? And then I got uh, I got one last thing for you after that. Yeah. So I mean, the the, the rest of the schedule is pretty interesting, right? Because they have like three home games now against Stanford, Cal, um, and Washington, and, and those are three games that like you, you're thinking they should win, right? Um, they haven't actually been that great at home this year, which is weird. They've been a lot better on the road. Um, Stanford is interesting. Um, they're a big team, so I think Oregon's going to have to get something from their big man or completely, completely go small and just run them out of the gym. Cal is kind of in the dumps right now. I don't think there's much going on there. Um, but again, I, I think the next three, four, really, with Arizona State on the road are winnable games because then you get into that gauntlet, right, where it's at Arizona and then home for UCLA and USC, so three straight top 25. That's, that, that's such an insane stretch of, of games right there. Like That's going to be yeah, so fun. Yeah. Exactly, it's, it just hasn't been much like that. Oregon basketball, like it's, it obviously doesn't burn with like the same flame as as football. I mean, it's just a completely different, different, um, different entity overall. But like when, when like the men's and women's teams are good, and it's late February, and there's like those big home games, and you know, I can look back and thinking like maybe Arizona in 2016 or 17 or, or UCLA at home. Um, 
there's a unique electricity like in that building for those games. And, and, and that's kind of something that I wanted to ask you because ultimately you end up seeing this discourse like every once in a while about how Matthew Knight Arena isn't the same as MacArthur Court and, and this or that, which at this point is a discussion that's been going on longer than you've even been in school because um, they, they've been playing at MK, MKA now for over a decade. Um, so as somebody who has only experienced Oregon basketball at MKA, I'm not going to ask you to like say like which one was better, which one do you think was better, but just like what has your experience as kind of just going with what's your Oregon basketball experience like at the arena? Yeah, there haven't been many big marquee home games since I've been a student here, since I've been at the the Daily Emerald. I mean, it's you know they get robbed of hosting Michigan um, last year because of yeah. the COVID stuff, and that would have been a huge game. Um, and you know, outside of that, I can think of there was a game I covered maybe like two years ago now, before COVID, where they were down like twenty to Colorado, but the fans stayed in it and they full course used a full court press just kind of um through Colorado into frenzy and came all the way back in one in the last second. That was one that sticks out to me. And then honestly when Dan Landing spoke the other week, um when Oregon State came to town, that was like the most packed I've seen it, which is funny because you're mentioning football, right? And it was Dan right. Landing being there. And that was the most packed I've and energetic I'd seen it in years. And so it's funny because you know I come like from Ann Arbor, which so I would go to Chrysler Center there and right. even when the teams weren't great, like you got a pretty packed crowd it's it, weird like sitting there's just big clumps of empty seats i don't know i i i i feel like the i mean granted this is the very low on on the the worries register from the pandemic but like from like 14 to basically 20 was like this big build for momentum in terms of just general basketball interest i i, I think you know the men's final four run and then obviously with uh unesco and 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 that team like it was it was such a big build that like it finally because when i started covering the team in 14 like mka had maybe like 3500 people in there like there it was it was just it, it felt like a, a brand new building that had zero character and it, it was like echoing it just just didn't didn't feel like a college basketball game and it it took a lot of work for them to like get it to that point and then basically you just pull the rug on like two of the two really successful teams between the Sabrina team and the Peyton team you don't get to like see them go play in the tournament this and then the next year you don't have fans in the stands because of the pandemic um I, I think it's going to ultimately be pretty costly because I the, the one game that I have covered this year it was the Baylor game it's the number one number one team in the country uh or were they one it was one yeah, or two at that point yeah yeah it was yeah it was it was the number one team in the country um and it was maybe 60 percent full like in the building like it just didn't have that electricity and i know it was like a midweek game but um yeah. that was some that that was the type of game maybe three or four years ago that probably would have sold out yeah you wonder about the effects of covid and i'll be really interested to see um like i said especially that ucla game and that usc game um those are like a, i think it's like a thursday saturday or something like that and That'll be interesting because if those get packed, you know, that would be a kind of a cool way to kind of end the season um, for Oregon. But like to your point, like the craziest games I've been to and covered at Oregon were women's games, which is great. Like, but like it, they, they felt like what you see watching like the Warriors on TV, like the fans, like the, the team's up 20, 30 and the fans don't sit down every time there's a shot, a three, whatever they're screaming. Like that was the, 
atmosphere. I would see like it. There seems like there's potential for the men's team to get there. I mean, I know the men's team hasn't always been as good as the women's team in the last four or five years, but it's weird because the men's team hasn't been bad either, especially late in the season. Like they've always been putting it together. So I don't know. It, it's kind of it's just interesting to see because there's I don't think there's any other schools where you're going to get that kind of maybe UConn, but that kind of split right. between the energy at a, a women's game versus a men's game. Well, like I think, I think one the women's sport, it's easier to um, be a fan of players for longer because I mean, like you know, e- even though you know Kelly Graves has done such a great job of of uh, uh, just revamping how they recruit and, and bringing in all these talented players, like most of those players are going to be here for three or four years. It's a great point. Whereas, yeah. I mean, you know, part part of the reason why Oregon's men's team struggled so much this year is because they have four new guys in the starting lineup. It, it's it, it's just so hard to kind of track those players, and then by the time like that the games mean something, then you have basically a month with them <laughs> absolutely should we talk blazers for a second yeah yeah let's let's uh what do you think <laughs> the, like like it, it had to happen but like it's such like uh like there's no guarantee that that's going to be a good return coming back and like like they waited so long to get this thing done too like i uh i've it's been funny because I, I came to Oregon. I'm not a Blazers fan. I didn't understand the fandom of, of the Blazers and that kind of fanatic scene over here in the Pacific Northwest. And since my freshman year, I've thought Blazers fans are delusional, every single one of them. <laughs> because I don't think they should have gotten to even really – I mean, they, they were lucky to get to the Western Conference Finals that year against Warriors, and they had no chance. Like, let's be real. And, like, I was reading your piece yesterday, like – a great, great, you know, maybe the second best backcourt at that time, you know, definitely arguably, uh, but they were they were never close to to winning a championship. And so I've thought because there's this whole thing with the NBA now where it's like you can change your destiny so quickly, right, with a few moves because it's only 15 guys on a roster and it's only eight or nine that end up playing down the season. So like one piece can make such a difference. I thought they should have blown it up a few years ago because I, I pulled this up. Um, this this tweet I found is like what they got or what they spent to get Powell, Covington, and Nance, and then what they ended up giving up. Or I'm sorry, um, what they what they spent and then what they received in these trades. And so they they what they spent was Gary Trent, who's a rising star, Rodney Hood, Derek Jones, and three first rounders. And then when they traded these guys away over the last few days, they got Bledsoe, who's washed, Winslow, who can't <laughs> stay healthy, Keon Johnson, who hasn't played. And one first rounder, and then, you know, the, you could say the CJ one is is clear, clearing cap space, but now they just want to build around Dame, and the name I'm hearing is Jeremy Grant, who is like Costco Tobias Harris, which is not moving a needle whatsoever. I, uh, you you want to talk about delusional Blazers fans? My one of my very first assignments when I was an intern at the Oregonian was I went to a bring LeBron James to Portland rally. Uh, this was in this was in 2010. It was before it was before uh, um, the decision, um, and I, I went back and read that yesterday. And it was they like sent out all these press releases and like they, they were expecting a big crowd and they had planned it for months, uh, and they didn't realize they had planned it on Father's Day and it was raining and so like 15 people showed up and I still like wrote went down and wrote like a tongue in cheek story anyways. Uh, but when I was like writing that McCollum thing yesterday, because like the news happened in the morning, I was like, oh, you know, like I, I think I can respond with some sort of take to this. There was like a little moment where I was like, man, LeBron's expiring in two years or LeBron's expiring next year. He just like set kind of 
set the stage a little bit last week with, uh, you know, I want to play wherever Bronny goes, and like that might not be with the Lakers. Him and Dame are always pretty damn chummy with each other. You know, we, we see it at the All-Star game, and, and like this whole week it's been like, oh man, the Lakers are going to fleece bla- the Blazers, and, and Dame's going to go to L.A., Nike's here. There's going to be a lot of cap space. I'm just, I'm just saying. Right as we're as we're shitting on the delusional fans, we're talking about James <laughs> maybe coming to Portland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to hold my breath for that one. I, I think they should blow it up. I think they should just get rid of Dame too. Dame's 32. He's hurt bad. He probably's not going to play again this season. And Did, and 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 I don't I don't think Dame like I I think Dame is mesmerizing like like when he's on he is as fun of a player in the nba to watch maybe say for like steph curry um no but there's kind of, but there's a bit of like a fuck you attitude to dame that i love so much that that curry doesn't you know necessarily carry himself with i don't know unless you had like a 1b that was very 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 close in terms of talent to dame i don't think dame can be the best player on a championship team no and and like there haven't been that many teams where a small guard was I mean, the whole thing now is like you have these small guards. Yes, I mean, Curry did it, but then he did it with KD for a few years. And right, it's like it's all about these big wings who can score. We were just talking about that with the Altman teams, right? And so that should be your first priority. And those are the guys that are going one, two, three, four, five each year in the draft. And so if you trade a guy like Dame, you know, who knows what you get back because the trade market's so wonky these days. Teams are getting fleeced, teams are getting huge hauls. You know, I think about like the AD trade for the Pelicans, what that could have turned into, right? Um, but if you can jump up in the draft, especially with the way the lottery is designed now, um, where you can kind of steal picks from people um, and, and go get a, one of these big wings that it seems like there's three or four of them every year, I just yeah. think that's a better way to kind of start the next generation. I, I just think getting a, a fan base like Portland which is which has supported the team for so well for so many decades at this point to get them to buy into the tanking process i think is a, just a little bit of a gamble because we are in an era of the nba right now where like you can do everything right from the tanking perspective you can be bad for a couple of years you can accumulate picks um but if you're not able to sign that free agent or this or that and and like you're relying solely on on your drafting Good, good luck because there are teams that we've seen where like the Nets or like the Clippers are like these teams who have completely changed their fortunes over the course of an offseason just because they got one big free agent to come who brought his friends with them. And then you can completely like skip the whole rebuilding process like, you know, the Blazers could be steadily improving and have three teams leapfrog them in the offseason just because they're not in on those kind of let's go there and team up discussions. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's. It goes both ways, too, because, like, when's the last time a big free agent came to Portland, right? So they have this cap space, but, again, I'm, I'm worried that they're just going to fill it with people like a Jeremy Grant who's kind well, of like yeah. an overachieving, you know, quote-unquote three and D wing who can put it on the, on the on the floor a little bit and dribble. But I, I just don't know. Like, I, I, I look at the team, and, like, they're kind of, they were kind of stuck in, like, NBA purgatory when they had their full roster where they're never bad enough to follow the playoffs, but they're never good enough to really challenge for a title. But they're selling it, tickets. It's electric in there. So, yeah. It, it, it just kind of reminds me like a little bit of like the 90s NBA where like the two or three years where Jordan was out. It was like, all right, now everyone go and try to get yours before he comes back. And in this example, there's like two Jordans because it's it's whatever team LeBron's on. And then it was whatever the Warriors were doing. Mm-hmm. And like I, I feel like the Blazers, the Blazers could just be like 
this example of like Charles Barkley, a really good player, a Hall of Fame player, but you just never got yours because there was two all-time entities going at, at the same time. And I, I feel like with the, the roster that they made uh, for that Western Conference Finals run, like that was the year that they were like or, – or, either that year or like even maybe last year where the Lakers were hurt, the Warriors weren't there. Like it was, it was a year where the team like the Suns were able to sneak in and make a run. Like that was probably the year that the Blazers as constructed needed to make their run. And they just weren't able to do that last year. They just never found the right guys at the right prices to fill in the margins. And that's like a lot of teams struggle with that. And we've seen it with a few of the younger teams on these last few years, the Sixers are doing the same thing. Um, okay, what, one last question I got to get you out of here on. You had mentioned uh, you had a buddy who ended up at Syracuse. Yeah. How much further ahead does he think he is than you right now? You know, it's fun because we, we talk a lot. We're very close, and we, we kind of do get to compare experiences. Um, so, for example, like I, I've been the, the sports editor at the Emerald now for two, two years, and I was assistant the year before that. And he just applied to become the head guy at the radio station there because he's doing broadcast. So it's also a little bit different in that right. sense. Um, but he didn't get it. And he was bummed. And I was talking to him on the phone. I was like, dude, like when you become the main guy, you spend 60, 70% of your time dealing with other people's shit. And you can just now go and really focus on your grind because that's the thing. It's like it's so competitive there. And I didn't, you know, I didn't run from the competition, but at a school like Oregon, I was able to step on. And after, you know, one year, I was able to cover a football team, which is probably top five, top 10 brands nationally. Um, and at a place like Syracuse, I figured, and I think I would have been right in figuring this, like I would have been working up to doing stuff like that my senior year. And there's so many people. And yes, the name of Syracuse, it, it carries because there's so many big alumni, but you're also just kind of down in a pit, just fighting with other, you know, kids trying to get out and climb out. And right. I think at Oregon, I've been able to kind of set myself aside a little bit, especially because, you know, I'm not super drawn to the recruiting bloggy type of writing that a lot of kids my age have been and, and are getting jobs doing and well, you know, good paying jobs too. But it's been able to give me the opportunity to kind of set myself aside a little bit, I think. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, man. We'll, we'll definitely have you on. Uh right around the tournament time and, and break that down and, and see where the ducks are then. Perfect. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on there. Stop. You're listening to the I-5 Corridor. Hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider.
You're listening to the I-5 Corridor, hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider. 